podcast one production. We live in a world of cars that can drive themselves, of computers that can speak and listen, of cities that share, of vacuum cleaners that spy, a world where all of us walk around with all of the world's knowledge in the palm of our hands. G'day, I'm Mark Pesci. The coming next billion seconds are the most important in human history as technology transforms the way we live and work. On this series, we talk to some of the brightest minds shaping our world, charting our path as we voyage into an incredible future. And at our halfway point, we look back to where we started and ahead to where we're going over the next billion seconds. We launched the next billion seconds in an open-ended chat with one of the best thinkers I know. John Alsop wears many hats, writer, speaker, organizer of amazing conferences. Underneath all of those hats, there's a mind that is constantly touching the edge between the present and the future. It's in the space between those two, between what is happening now and what we think will soon happen. That's the space John occupies. And if it occasionally gives him a distracted look, it's because he's already somewhere else, somewhere we will all soon follow. It made sense at this halfway point in our first series to circle back and have a chat with John. We've covered a lot of ground, and maybe it's time to have a crack at drawing a bit of a map of the next billion seconds. So our conversation in the first episode interestingly ended up in this place where we're talking about your kids and whether your kids were going to be learning to drive, like the young ones probably weren't, the older ones would, but then maybe wouldn't drive too much. And it's part of that larger conversation that we're all having about what's happening to transportation, what's happening to cars right now. And it really hit a nerve with the audience. I've been hearing from a lot of people that they really were struck because maybe they hadn't thought about it till that moment, but now they can actually see it quite clearly. Do you reckon you were still right? Um, That's a really interesting question. So uh, a a person who's thinking I, I very much appreciate it. His name is Tom Coates. So Tom uh, lives and works in San Francisco, has for many years, has worked at Yahoo, but uh, is originally British uh, and he's very much lives in this space of connected things and so on. And he his suspicion is that this is a little longer in coming than perhaps my predictions. Uh, and similarly, Chris Urmson. So Chris Urmson was at Carnegie Mellon University where a lot of the early work in autonomous vehicles uh, happened mm-hmm. and he moved to Google and he worked on that project for a long time and now has a startup called Aurora, which is all about developing systems that other you know, manufacturers of cars can integrate into their cars. And he feels it's actually where it's a 30-year project where this sort of level five autonomy, which you've mentioned before, where essentially the cars get us from point A to point B without any driver interaction is perhaps within some constraints such as reasonable weather or on certain roads, relatively close at hand. Whereas being able to go to any place in any weather condition, in any lighting condition, maybe even even decades away. Well, and those, of course, are all the edge conditions for human beings too. Those are all the conditions that are really hard. I don't like driving in rain. I really don't like driving in rain. I will actually try to avoid driving in rain if I can possibly avoid it because the conditions are so not they're not predictable right they're they're very unsettling like that and you have to think that any car that has a a brain in it and is trying to master these conditions is going to find itself of course in the same predicament 
I wonder if our cars will get anxious about the way. <laughs> well, I mean, in a sense, in the fact that they may become very overloaded with the number of decisions they're being asked to make, which is a kind of anxiety around that. Now, in the time that we've recorded that interview and now, my 79-year-old uncle bought himself a birthday present this year. He bought himself a Tesla Model S and he bought the high-end model. He lives in America. And it's interesting because he's bought a car that absolutely has some level of autonomy, can drive itself certainly on the freeway in America. Those are all very well mapped. It'll drive itself. When I asked him about it, he was very clear. He's like, look, you know, I I don't mind driving myself around today, but in a couple of years, I probably am going to want a car that's going to drive me around. And by then, he figures the Tesla will be ready. Do you reckon he's made the wrong bet? Well, I don't think he's got much alternative up to a point. Yeah. Uh, but but no, I suspect so. And again, because if he can make his choices about, for the most part, when to travel and where, uh, if perhaps he can route himself uh, right. along those roads that... And he'll be traveling during the daytime, presumably, right. 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 So so I, I certainly don't think that. I mean, I remember uh, driving past the airport here in Sydney a few weeks ago, and it's often really busy there. I looked to my right, and there's, there's someone in a Tesla. Mm. Uh, we're moving probably 10 or 15 kilometers an hour fully engrossed in a mobile phone, mm. like as he moves along, mm-hmm. like paying no attention whatsoever to the road because he is fully confident that in those conditions, it will keep to the lanes, it will make sure it doesn't hit the car in front of him. Uh, so, you know, people are already making these bets. And it's interesting because I had, uh, I gave a talk last week and I was ferried to this talk, which was about two hours away in a Tesla Model X, which is the brand new mm. Tesla. It's the it's the one that's an SUV. It's got gull wings that sweep up. Very new, very schmick. And I was asking the driver, because there was a driver in it, I was like, you know, have you turned on the autonomous driving? He says, well, actually, this is a new model and Tesla hasn't gathered a lot of data from this model. And so much about what we think of as self-driving is really about learning, the, basically the manufacturer learning how those sensors work, all of the, because there are radars or LIDARs as we call them that are constantly scanning the territory. There being that that data is coming in and the computer's trying to make decisions based on it. And we have a new model because the model has been out for I think four or five years now. We have a new model. You can't necessarily trust that the car knows what to do with that data. So he simply hasn't put it in self-driving mode because there haven't been enough miles driven in that car for the software to be good enough. And so maybe part of what we're seeing is that 30 years is really reflecting a sense of the depth of learning that all of these all of these cars are going to need before we feel we can trust them. So I think a lot of it comes down to that sense of trust. Um, and of course, on one level, we make a decision for ourselves. Mm. Uh, you know, do I try, is the trade-off between the very small chance of something going wrong and all the convenience I get you know, we make that decision by ourselves, but then there are second-order implications for the people around us, yeah. right? So, you know, I might decide that it's fine for me, but if I'm going to have an accident, then it it's going to involve someone else. Yeah. And, and, and have I the right to make that decision, which ties back to what Genevieve Bell was talking about in terms of the ethics we build into our algorithms about do I save the school children or do I save the driver? You know, these are decisions. Who gets to make that? Is that the top level upgrade? Upgrade to <laughs> save you rather than the, the... Well, on that note, so we just had Hurricane Irma in Florida. And as people were fleeing Florida, Tesla pushed an update out to all of the Model S's because it turns out that the Model S Tesla, its range is limited not by the capacity of the battery, but by the software that's running in the car. And so they actually pushed out an update that gave all of those lower model... Tesla's 
higher battery, in other words, higher mileage capacity just by changing the software. And again, people got quite upset about this because you're thinking, well, wait a minute, you mean I have to pay more to get more mileage out of my car, but my car is essentially the same as this other car? And it was surprising to people that that's the case, but it's the same thing in a in an internal combustion car where your engine has a computer in it that's tuned for a specific level of performance that you pay for. For example, the GTI in the Volkswagen cars is the same engine, and people mod the chips in them, which right. voids their warranty. But people, there are ways in which you can upgrade the chip in your non-GTI Volkswagen right. to get GTI performance. I did see that thing where people people were outraged that that in fact there, there was no limitation other than simply the the, the software the, the software license. Right? Okay, and this actually comes in very nicely into really what we're, we were talking about with Andy Pauline with services and and surfaces and the way these things present themselves because the Tesla presents itself as a very sort of schmick surface. It's very nice. It's very clear. And you don't see all of this furious tuning that's underneath it, that's under control, that's a service that you're paying for and that you're interacting with. And, you know, Andy seemed to say that what we're doing now is we're tending to produce these incredible surfaces in order, in some sense, to hide what's going on behind the scenes. That what's going on behind the scenes isn't just trying to cover up things the manufacturer doesn't want to know, but it's also covering up things that the manufacturer is doing that it doesn't want you to see. Yeah, I guess, you know, that's effectively how marketing has worked for a, a long time, I guess, packaging up complexity and selling it as a, a simple set of desires or or outcomes that we want. Right. Um, you know, but perhaps we're seeing that embedded into into more and more sophisticated things. Well, you know, since, again, since we had our conversation with Andy, uh, Google Home has been released across Australia. You can't go anywhere, but they're selling lots and lots of Google Homes. And it's really interesting because you think it's going to be this great device. You can sort of conversationally talk to it. You can ask it to do things. And, of course, as soon as we got one, we said, you know, okay, Google, play the next billion seconds. And it immediately said, I'm sorry, I don't know how to do that yet. In a very nice, sweet voice. But it was because no one had built the skill or the software that it needed. So it's in some sense, it's not intelligent on its own. It gives that surface appearance of being smart. But in fact, it's just the top on top of all of these other things, all of these other pieces that need to be built. And so you can have this appearance of something being smart or seeming smart, but underneath it's actually all just plumbing and wiring and, and the bits that we don't want people to see because somehow it loses the magic. It reminds me a little of the Turing test. Which... Okay, so the Turing test, for example, we, we, we take you, John, we put you in a room and we give you a little computer screen. And actually, in fact, what we'll do is we'll give you Facebook Messenger, all right? And messages will come in and you'll have a conversation with someone on Facebook Messenger. And over the course of that conversation, you have to make a decision whether you're talking to a machine, a bot, or to a human being. And that's called the Turing test. And so Alan Turing, who, who kind of is a great genius of computing, really, he kind of came up with that idea 50 plus years ago. Oh, yeah, for, 70 years ago. 70 years ago now for how we might determine whether something's intelligent or not. And, and to some extent, we haven't actually got much better at coming up with a set of, of, of criteria for determining intelligence other than, you know, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, then it's a duck. So to come back to the, the, the Turing test idea is, um, you know, all these intelligent agents, Cortana and Siri and Google Home and Alexa, uh, uh, you know, they, they're all faking it, obviously, mm. uh, up to a point. But is it fake it till you make it or is it just always going to be faking it? Well, that's a really interesting question. It comes back to your Model X observation about how 
Tesla's approach to autonomy has been to learn as people drive. Right. So essentially the process is the every car they put on the road is sensing the world and feeding this data back. All right, and the, 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 this is a really important point because again, it comes to that idea that these things hide how much they're surveying. But Tesla uploads all of your driving every night back to Tesla. And when you sign your warranty agreement, you agree that that car is going to upload all of that data to Tesla. And if you have an accident with your Tesla, you don't necessarily have access to that data. It's all of that as well. Absolutely. So the way Tesla goes about learning is, well, creating autonomy or intelligence of some description is essentially to take something that's pretty dumb yeah. and, and learn as you go. Now, Google's approach traditionally has been kind of the opposite, which is to is sort of build you know, complex algorithms and kind of have a top-down approach to autonomous. So, so, for example, Google's autonomous cars are very dependent on data that end up mapping yeah. and, and so on that is essentially kind of imposed from the outside. It's all collected and then embedded into the device as opposed to Tesla's process. Which so is it's kind of like Street View. I mean, basically every car is walking around with Street View at this point. In that sense, Google has developed all the Street View data. Whereas Tesla never did Street View because essentially every time a car drove a kilometre, it added to the to the right. effective street view. So these are two very different pro approaches to developing intelligence. One is is based on on data that is collected and over time refines the intelligence of the device. And the other approach is is we just hone these really good algorithms and then we um, sort of transmit those into our devices and, and upgrade them that way. And, and we don't really know whether either of these is the right way to do it, do we? <laughs> well, you know, what is the limit? We, we haven't done it before. What's right. the limiting factor? So if you look at the earliest years of, of, of artificial intelligence, what were the constraints? We didn't have very la large data sets. We did not have uh, very much memory. Right. And we had very slow Computers. computers. So the focus was largely around algorithms, as, as creating. Uh, so the algorithm is, is yeah, to create a model, so that the computer would then be operating from the model rather than from something it had learned by discovering the environment, because we just couldn't get computers to learn at that point. So a great example of that is machine translation from one human yeah. language to another, which in the <laughs> earliest days we thought was going to work by completely understanding all English language pro, um, syntax and grammar and, and so on, and then completely understanding all Japanese you know, grammar and syntax, all the rules, and then essentially mapping one set of rules onto the other. And languages don't work that way. They tend not to. Essentially... The way in which an algorithmic approach is we learn all the rules and we use those rules to transform one language to another, right? So, so essentially we, we capture all the rules like humans analyze uh, all of English and come up with all the syntactical rules. And, and that's a set of instructions that we can then give to a computer and say, you know, when you get this word, then you do this thing, as opposed to simply saying to a computer, here's a whole bunch of stuff in English and Japanese that are the same thing. Go and learn how it works. Right? So that's kind of the two different approaches. And that's the Tesla approach, which it, as opposed to the algorithmic approach, which is very much Google's approach. But here's, a, here's the thing, just on that note. So I was in China in July and I was in Shenzhen, which is sort of the electronics capital of the world, with some friends who wanted to get their iPhone fixed. And a very sophisticated repair, but that's actually the best place in the world to get this done. And so we wander up to a counter which says iPhone repair in English. And we try to engage them in conversation. And at a certain point, what happens is they produce their smartphone. They talk into it in Cantonese. It translates to English. And we read it. It says, oh, well, what do you want? And we actually told them what we wanted. It was kind of sophisticated what we wanted. But it translated it again into Cantonese. And they went, oh, yeah, okay, come back in an hour. We'll have it fixed for you. So this very sophisticated thing. 
because we've spent so much time training these systems and feeding our data, our human data into it, are now good enough that they actually can work conversationally. I think they, they're good enough for certain things without a doubt. Right. Um, and the question is, you know, is there a limiting factor? Is there a, 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 do they take us so far and no further? Or do they, essentially, are they unlimited in terms of their capacity? All right, on that note, we're going to pause and we will come back and talk a little bit about what cities are becoming with John Elsa. And we're back reviewing the half series with John Elsip. John, let's talk about Darren Sharp and the sharing cities, because this is the thing. Sharing cities, cities are places of actual abundance, right? It's not just a collection of people. It is that, but it's a collection of all the things they know and they know how to do and all the things they own and maybe don't use all the time, whether that's a car sharing or it's tool sharing or it's knowledge sharing or skills sharing. It's all of these things. And so, is part of what the 21st century is, is it's just, it's not just about that raw material abundance. Are we now starting to actually see the value in each other and in the skills that each other have? And does that, because I, I listened to Darren Sharp and I listened to Kate Turney, who are approaching it from interesting angles because the library has always been around sharing as well. Darren's talking about cities as places for sharing. Are we seeing this differently now because of that material abundance? Well, I think once people, for the most part, aren't desperate for things to keep them alive, mm. um, we, we sort of have this surplus of of time and energy to devote to- Snapchat. Uh, kind of, for example, <laughs> I mean, poor old Maslow's, so famous Maslow's you know, period of hi- hierarchy of needs where we start at the bottom with these very- basic right. things like air and food and water and sex and we move up towards self-actualization. And Wi-Fi and battery power. Right. I've seen all of that on that chart now. So so I guess, you know, when when we, we for the most part, and it's not true of all people in all places, obviously, but for the, you know, in large part, we've started to deal with the, the basic exigencies of life. Um, as we move up the hierarchy toward uh, meaning, creating meaning in our existence, mm. I think oh, is that something the 21st century is going to allow, or will that essentially be, you know, in, in a world where um, machines do lots of work for us? It isn't just blue collar work, but increasingly white collar work. Yeah. What are we? How are we going to confront the challenge of of essentially a lot of people who used to be paid a lot of money no longer being paid for skills that computers can do better? So let me give you. Two little stories here. I woke up this morning and and read the Wall Street Journal and there was a big article. So uh, Justin Can, who founded Twitch, uh, Justin TV originally before that, so really invented this idea of personal broadcasting. His latest startup is basically taking all of the law stuff that goes on in Silicon Valley and building systems for it. So he wants to not so much put those lawyers out of work, but make it much cheaper for small businesses to have access to high-quality legal work. And I was talking to a lawyer in Australia who's doing exactly the same thing, partially because startups don't have a lot of money, but they need a lot of legal work, but partially because she's actually trying to decrease her own burden. Now, that's sort of one data point. But yesterday, another lawyer who's about to retire, sort of he's very senior, but about to retire, said, I can totally get how the lawyers will be using artificial intelligence and will have better lawyers because of that. But there's this whole range of lawyers who are just coming into the field and they've only worked, they're, they're just graduating and they won't really be good for much until they've worked for five years because it kind of takes you that long to sort of learn all the stuff you need to learn. And a client's not going to pay for that because a client needs to get the high quality from someone who's actually been through that process. 
and he asked me, he said, Mark, look, if we have this world where you have these lawyers who have great artificial intelligence and they're really, really productive, who's going to be training these people as they're coming into the field? And I had never thought about it before that, but it's like if we go super high-end and we keep these really high-end jobs, and I think we will, like there will be professionals who will be rock stars because they've got all of the tools that they need. How do you train the next generation of rock stars? I don't have an answer to that. I don't think anyone does yet because we've never had this question before. Well, it'd be interesting to see if you look at uh, – well. Uh, a much derided group of people that I think we should resurface and revisit in great detail are the Luddites. Okay, so Ned Ludd. Yes, who so w- Captain Ludd, I think they sometimes refer to, uh. um, who didn't really exist, but was this mythical fi- figure in the kind of industrial north of England during the early 19th century. Um, essentially, uh, was someone who, gal- well, the idea galvanized, uh, particularly I think weavers who had found themselves a generation before were master craftsmen yes. who were- And made a lot of money. Made a lot of money um, and, and, and over a period of about a, a, a generation went from being kind of lauded and, and, and the kings of, of, at the time, the idea of the working class didn't exist. No, um, the kings no they were artisans. That, artisans and, and, and that completely de-skilled and devalued. Yeah. And their response, which I don't think is entirely irrational, uh, but has become a byword for irrationality and and kind of a canoodle-like turning back of, of the, the hands of time, was essentially to say, well, to, to destroy the looms right. that that replace them. And what was interesting is that that and, was and a capital offence. People could be executed and were executed for doing that. The word sabotage. Right, sabot, shoe, because they would throw the shoes into the machinery to break it as well. And so, yeah, there's this entire sort of movement in Western Europe during industrialization to be able to think, well, if we break the machines, and, and you know, you break the machine, you've, you've stopped the machine for a period of time, but you haven't stopped mechanization. You haven't stopped industrialization. So we've, we've sort of been here before. And, and what I think is very salutary is to think about how we responded to that period. And what we effectively did is, is that we just saw anybody who was kind of put out of a job or, or lost their livelihood or, or had their, their career or whatever you want to call it uh, kind of diminished. Well, we just, that were collateral damage. But if you actually, you know, and some people, you know, like, you know, got to break eggs to make an omelette, you know, <laughs> to use uh, ironically a Marxist kind of an analogy there. Um, you know, but if you actually look at the human consequences, what you saw mm. in industrial England from the early 19th century into the mid 19th century is for two or three generations, the average life expectancy dropped. And by any measure, the quality of life diminished greatly. So in the longer run, people point out how much value we got. We created the modern world. We got efficiency. We got modern science. They and got technology. the empire. You know, maybe not not all quite as good as, yeah, but. Yeah. But ultimately, like there was a very real human cost paid, and and I think that we should be aware that so we, we may pay a similar price again. And and what are the consequences of that? I mean, and it it is interesting because I I do know people posit that as an example for why the robots are going to put us out of work, which is not a particular point of view that I hold. But I also then tend tend to look at the beginning of the twentieth century. About ninety percent of all labor was farm based labor. And at this point in Australia, it's about 2%. So we've gone from 90% to 2%, which means that a whole bunch of labor ended up going elsewhere. And, you know, it came into cities. It, it did sort of manual or industrial occupations, and, but it was absorbed. And I think that there's a fear here that that labor, the quote, quote, surplus labor, which is going to be professionals. I think maybe lawyers. I don't think it's going to be doctors because I think there's a whole bunch 
of being a doctor that's tied up in the human touch. So I think it's going to affect some professions more than it affects other professions. I think teaching is going to be less affected as well because again, it's very much about being with the teacher, with the mentor. But in the cases where it's not, there's going to be a lot of other labor that's going to get freed up. And I guess the question is, in the 19th century, people just said, well, yeah, good luck in the slum. That That's one point of view. But then the other point of view is being able to say, well, okay, wait a minute. We actually live in this culture of intelligence and knowledge, and people now have the capacity to retrain themselves, even as they know this change is coming. My feeling is that we're going to be spending, within the next couple of years, we're going to be spending about as much time learning how to do the next thing as we're doing the thing that we're actually getting paid for now because things will be moving that fast and we will be working to stay ahead precisely so we don't end up on the dust heap of history. So I find that, so it brings me back to to something I observed in both Andy and myself talking about our children. Uh, and obviously Andy's children's quite young and mine were alluded to between the ages of four and 11. And one of the things that really I focus a lot on is thinking about how to help them prepare for the future. So my, obviously there's been a big thing about hours of code, code club, and these are great things. Um, you know, like I, I, you know, I could go into great detail why I think kind of coding programming is effectively like the literacy of the last 150 years. Um, it's, a, it's, it's learning how to think lo- in a logical sequence of steps, which is important. I think there's the thinking, the th- the thinking process, uh, but I also think then there's the consequence of, of being able then to manipulate devices in a way uh, that goes beyond their standard settings. Uh, so, so for me, I expose them. And it's not necessarily like we, I've sat down, we've done the hour of coding here and, and so forth, but it's more expo- exposing them to, to that way of thinking. So there's some really interesting games you can get on, on you know, smartphones that, that allow them to, say, move a, a robot around a, a space that uses programmatic thinking, but you're not writing if then else for. Right. But you're, you, you're, you're exposing... And, and so kids who aren't even literate, they can't even read, they know the idea of a forward and back and left and right. And, and so even pre-literate age, they can kind of be using that approach to thinking about how to manipulate a virtual world, which essentially all programming is manipulating something virtual through some sort of you know, language or other interface. Right. So really what you're doing is you're getting in the same way that you would be reading to them very young, you're really showing them that the world that they live in has this quality of programmability. Absolutely. And I, I think the other thing is that for the most part, people are afraid of technology. I, I, I think they're afraid of science and technology broadly. Uh, even when I was growing up, I remember having a wonderful teacher in year five, but her response to doing maths of a morning, I have a degree in mathematics and something I particularly enjoy, even if I'm not actually all that good at it. She would be like, Maths books out quickly. It was like we're pulling a tooth. We'll just get it out of the way. And now my nine-year-old who loves mathematics, like her way of, of calming herself down at night before she goes to sleep is, Dad, can you give me some more maths problems? Uh, it warms the cockles of my heart. But you know, even in her, she talks to me about how other kids at school find this kind of literally weird the, um, that she likes it. So I think that this we we have this fear of science and technology. Mm. We're, I don't know whether we're afraid of, 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 of it being – hard or us looking stupid and and to be quite if there's one single thing i could i want to overcome with my own children but more broadly for everyone children and otherwise is that let's let's get over this fear and anxiety about science and technology i actually think that in the same way humans 
Lord speak and and read almost by osmosis. I actually, I actually think we we construct blocks on people's capacity to to reason scientifically and and, and technically. Um, that you know, if we if we remove those, I I I don't think actually people are good or bad at science. I mean, there are some savants who are just extraordinary in mathematics. I'm not one of them. Like, you know, I was in classes with them. They taught me. And what they're capable of doing is almost unimaginable. But for the most, most of us are just re- really quite good at logic. I mean, humans are really good at logic, except if you dress it up in, in kind of formal terms and we tend to be terrified of it. So I, I would address this by saying I actually don't think that many people aren't actually good at science and technology. We just think we are because we have these societal cultural constructs around these are geeky, nerdy people who are good at science and this is the rest of us. I, 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 let me give you my own take on it. I, I think that people are terrified of being wrong. Yeah. And the thing they maybe don't remember is that science is actually predicated on being wrong, not on being right. That's the, that's the mistake people make. Science is actually predicated on being wrong and learning from your mistakes. Max Planck, who's one of the great scientists and kind of invented quantum theory, has a marvelous expression, which is um, science advances one obituary at a time. And, you know, it sort of just goes to show that kind of even the greatest scientists of his day, he observed, you know, the the Rutherfords who kind of, you know, explored the atom and come up with the atomic theory. When they reached quantum theory, they were just completely incapable of embracing it. And they needed to effectively die or retire in order for science to continue. By the time your 11-year-old graduates uni, so in like a decade, we don't really even necessarily know what kind of career options there are going to be for her at this point it's interesting i really found like genevieve's had a couple of just incredibly insightful observations that that you know like i'm rarely blindsided by people's observations i normally have been exposed to that but but the observations similarly that um with it you know coming back to the steam engine that became the 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 train became the railway and and whole new kinds of professions such as an engineer emerged in order to sort of scale up these changes and i guess you know i'm interested in what are these things that will emerge that so we let's tie this back in because again we see this bottom up we're learning about the world to be intelligent and this top down we've learned about the world we're going to feed it into all these devices to be intelligent and in some ways it looks like a lot of the opportunity is going to be around figuring out which of those is appropriate in a given situation putting it to work because very little of the world that we're in right now actually is all that smart you know there's a lot of potential to make stuff smart and stuff's connected together a lot now which can be good and bad but not a lot of it's really smart yet you know we have like the occasional self-driving car which again doesn't drive that much around and so it may very well be that by the time your eldest has graduated that that's actually going to be front and center we're actually going to be running around trying to make everything as smart as possible because there's a lot of value for us in that but the process of making everything smart it's a very human process and takes someone who's got skills there. It, it does. You, you, you sort of wonder at what point, you know, does that scale to lots of people or do you just need a small number of, of those people? Well, there's lots of things in the world though. Well, there, I guess there are a lot of things. You take, I mean, but even if you take a look to come back to the idea of a city and, and Darren really has this methodology of mapping out all the assets in a city – you know, depending on how deep you go, that map's really big. It's really detailed. The world is is both rich and complex. And so in a lot of ways, you can't just tick a box. I mean, it took how long to sort of electrify 
right? Bring mains electricity everywhere or to bring... Oh, uh, standard sewerage. Right, standard uh, sewerage. Water. All, all of these things actually took a fair bit of time and they're just sort of only bringing it into a household. You know, we're actually talking about sort of bringing it into everything that's in the material world. I mean, will we be quick about it? Well, it's going to take about 15 years to get from the iPhone being introduced, so 10 years ago, to pretty much 80% of all adults on the planet having an iPhone. That's pretty amazing. Or not an iPhone, but a smartphone. That's pretty, pretty fast. But that's just one thing, right? If we need to do this to all the things, we're still looking at probably something that's going to be the career for your kids. I hope so. Or a career. <laughs> a career. One of many. <laughs> right, exactly. So I guess if we're tying this all back together now, we have this world of intelligence, of mapping, of all this. And of course, when Genevieve and I were in studio was the same week that the Roomba had been exposed as a spying device, that people had vacuum cleaners, that in order to learn about your house like a Tesla, it was going to run around the house and build a map of your house by exploring all the nooks and crannies because it had to vacuum them. But once it had this really nice map, it really wanted to upload that map to someone who was going to buy that map. Because here's the thing, there are the kinds of companies, for instance, Google, who would really love to have that map. They would love to know sort of where everything is in your house in order to bring you even better products and services. So if you have something that's really intelligent and has some autonomy and a vacuum cleaner, we don't think of vacuum cleaners as being autonomous, but they're smart enough to do that sort of thing. Do we then start to have to establish, and this is another thing, ground rules for how these things are going to behave when they're interacting with us in our lives? Well, I think this comes back, I can't remember which of your guests talked about, it may have been Genevieve as well, around the different approach, regulatory approaches, for example, in Europe. Around oh, this is autonomy. Andy. Oh, this Andy, around yeah. autonomy, uh, who gets to decide, yeah. uh, you know, as opposed to the more laissez-faire approach that, that the, the US Americans take, yeah. tends, tend to have. And we have terms of service and we check the box as yeah. opposed to, uh, we, you know, maybe it's the role of the state up to a point to sort of think about second order effects and protect people from the decisions that they might not actually be aware of that they're really making. So that when you have a C-tick on something, it may very well be that the C-tick also means that the autonomy that's in there is going to play by certain rules that are true in Australia or true in Europe or, you know, or true in America. Well, the challenge also is that a company which, you know, whether it's Roomba or some other company, collects all this data and says, we're never going to share it with anyone and then is acquired by another company right. because the value of data uh, is, is increasingly extraordinary. And I think we're not even really starting to, to kind of realize how extraordinary it is. So we effectively have these pools of value that are sitting there in companies that, you know, oftentimes they, they go out of business, right? right. Um, you know, like we've had a whole lot in the-, the Or Equifax, which right. last week was just simply looted of all of their customer data, which is all credit data. Absolutely. So, you know, obviously there's a lot of value if someone tries to steal something yeah. of, that, of, of that data. So, you know, I, I think we're going to have to think about, you know, the, somebody having the custody over really important data that we generate about ourselves uh, over a decade, decades framework. Once it sits there, it might last for a very long time. So it's interesting because then to come back to this bottom up learning about the world, mapping the world out, right? That that's actually generating all of this data, whether it's your vacuum cleaner doing it or your Tesla doing it, it doesn't really matter. But that's generating data. So it's not just that these things have autonomy and are learning. But it's, it's also about the, what they're learning 
and that what they're learning has a life and a value beyond those things themselves. And so, and it, you're right, we don't think about that. And yet we're getting more and more things in this world that do that. I mean, our smartphones know, and our certainly our telephone carriers know everywhere we go because we're constantly moving from cell to cell to cell. And we don't think about that. Do we need to start thinking about that? Or do we need to, to just sort of say, guys, you need to manage this well? I I suspect that few humans have the capability first to understand the whole framework mm. and then to make well if they listen to this show clearly frame. they'll understand right. the whole framework but then to make as Andy mentioned at some point yeah. you know he he'd given so much away yeah. that he effectively had give he, he declared a kind of a kind of data bankruptcy yeah. uh, and I probably kind of to some extent share that response to the world uh, and at the same time probably kind of think. You know, like what resonated with me was was Andy talking about the decisions he was making for his children in terms of you know, like at some point they can make those decisions about what they share. But but uh, you know, that, again, that resonated with me. But there are just simply so many decisions to make, uh, so many trade offs. Uh, you know, you know, is it going to be some sort of system that allows us to sort of set a, a, a set of parameters and then it can translate that into specific decisions in specific cases, or do we rely on regulatory frameworks? Um, you know, and, and you know, the US probably isn't going to go down that path. The EU is much more likely to be. Australia probably sits in the middle of those two. Kind of. But this ends up being, I guess, the question that we can sort of end on, which is we, we're just in starting to explore this world. What we've learned is that all of the learning that we're doing and all of the devices that we're creating that are learning are doing are simply producing more and more questions. Which I guess is what humans have done since they first kind of burnt themselves on a forest fire and smelt the the burning flesh. Oh, you know, that smells quite nice. (laughs) And on that mildly cannibalistic note, John Elsa, thank you for joining us. And I hope you can join us at the end of the series when we're going to do a complete recap. I look forward to that very much, Mark. We hope that this chat with John Elsop has got you to thinking, and if so, we'd like to hear from you. Drop by our Facebook page or send us a message on Twitter or visit our website at nextbillionseconds.com. Tell us what you want to know about the future. We'll do our best to bring it to you in a future episode. In the next episode of The Next Billion Seconds, we'll be talking to media pioneer Rob Tursick about the way the world of media shapes how we think and feel. Next Billion Seconds is recorded for Podcast One. Recording and production assistance is provided by Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Nick Slater. Music by Kirk Godfrey. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or the Podcast One app. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening. <laughs>